Okay. Well, good, hello, everybody. I'm a lot of familiar faces and other people I'm really happy to meet. I just came over to introduce myself and then realized I was I should get back to the podium and get started. But um, I think I've had a chance to personally say hello to the folks in the room that I'm meeting for the first time. Uh, but I am Laura Shulkin, and I'm your uh, or one of your legal counsel, and uh, have done some work with you around governance and around uh, the Brown Act and worked with the board for years and am privileged to do so. So I was asked to come in and do your a bit of a refresher. This is always a good idea at the beginning of terms, the beginning of years, to uh, go back and revisit uh, the underlying legal principles that inform the way you govern. Uh, because we have done this work together before, I wanted to uh, make sure, looking at the agenda, that we started with a reference to building on what you have already done. Uh, we don't have to start with square one with this board. You have done work to develop a shared value statement. We did that work together. I'm very happy to know that you have it in front of you and have laminated it, and it's it's right there to remind everyone of some of the principles that you utilize. So I, I um, we, we start from there. That's our platform. We don't have to start for, at square one uh, with this board. And then what I wanted to do um, is spend the training on taking it to the next level. Uh, you know, those of you that I've had the privilege to work with before, that my goal is not to just come in and give you a bunch of rules detached from operational realities, detached from ideas about best practice, but to look at your legal obligations through the lens of best practices to help you be the most effective board you can be. Um, what I started talking to you about a few years ago and what I talked to my boards about is I realized so much of board training sounds like an hour or two hour long scolding session. Don't do this. Don't do this. Keep your nose out of this. Stop doing this. And um, what I've learned from my clients who are actually educators, that's not a very good way to teach people anything. And so what I do is board efficacy training. We focus on the do's. We focus on what your vision is as a board, what you think it means to be a high-functioning board, and then how do we help you achieve those goals within the parameters of law. So the, 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 the point is not to comply with the law. Funny to hear a lawyer say that. The point is to be a highly effective board in ways that are legal. Right? So taking it to the next level means applying the shared values statement to hold lawful and effective meetings. Um, and so we have two hours, and I have about two weeks of material. And so I boiled it down to uh, the things that seemed most relevant to some of the challenges that boards commonly face. Uh, productive use of open session, appropriate use of closed session, and then what I call lawful agility. Uh, the challenge for you, and we'll get into the slides about this in a minute, is that what the Brown Act means is that you get a few hours a month to advance the district's policies. That's all you get. So how do we make those, those hours as productive and useful as possible? Because that's what you get. 
You don't get to say, gosh, we didn't have a very productive meeting, so let's all go meet at Denny's and finish up. You don't get to do that. And so there are some things that do allow you some level of agility. Um, and so I want to look at those. And those are um, how you, when are you able to address matters that aren't on the agenda? When are you able to meet and, pro- and, and move forward the district's program outside of a, your regularly scheduled monthly meetings? Either because of an, through an emergency meeting or a special meeting, or by the effective use of committees. And so that's so that's what I'm calling sort of lawful agility. So those so this is looking at law, but through this very operational lens. Um, so there are many components of the Brown Act that we're not going to go through the minutia of correct language on an agenda um, and those sorts of things. We're going to look at this through what you need to know to hold highly productive business meetings of the board. So I am not going to read the value statement because I'm sure you all have it memorized and, um, and you can all read. But the first three slides, I just have it here in, in part because as we talk through some of the questions you may have about managing data, managing decision making, we may want to refer back to these. And so I wanted to have them easily uh, referenceable up on the screen. So the first three slides are just um, um, a copy of what you have in front of you, and these are your shared value statements. What I did want to do, and, and this is primarily for those of you who did not have the opportunity to participate in the process of creating these, is share with you this slide, which gives you a sort of a window into the methodology for creating these best practices for boards. And by the way, this is a process I've, developing those value statements is something I have done with boards all over the state, um, where we come in and and craft those together. Um, And this is the, the approach behind it. There are sort of three core areas of law that inform and create limits on the way you govern as a board. The Brown Act, conflicts of interest laws, and accreditation standards. Each of those informs certain governance principles grounded in law. And it's from those principles that we build best practices. So those 10 or so best practices that you see in front of you in your little stands, they came from this analysis, just so you see where they come from. The Brown Act tells us that that governing bodies can only act at a properly agendized meeting, that there's a strong, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I talk about it every time, you know I'm a huge proponent of transparency, I'm a big fan of the Brown Act, Uh, this is democracy, kids, and um, this is not a boardroom of a private company. We've got to get comfortable with public discourse uh, and doing the public's business under the public eye. That's what the Brown Act stands for. Um, What that means is we are limited in two ways. You can only act as a body, and you can only act at a properly agendized meeting. So you have this limit on when you can act. Many of the best practices that we talk about are how to make those meetings highly efficient business meetings, since those are your key opportunities 
to advance uh, the district's program. The conflict of interest statutes and conflicts of interest common law also affect the way you govern because they stand for the proposition that boards must act in a way that is fair and avoids even the appearance of impropriety, even the appearance of bias in all of the decisions that you make, whether they are financial interests or non-financial interests how we use the district's resources, how we use the time in front of the public. And what this helps us remember is that when you are conducting a public meeting, you are conducting a meeting with each other under the public eye. You are not holding a meeting with the public. You are holding a meeting with each other under the scrutiny of the public. And when we move away from that, that's when um, blurred lines start to happen that create concern. Uh, The utilization of public meeting time to communicate with your constituents. That should be done on individual elected officials' own time and using their own resources. This is not the time to inform the public of your platform. This is not the time to make speeches. It's the time to talk to your colleagues and deliberate over the actions that are on your agenda. Um, And guess what? When we do that, when we're more effective in talking to each other, the meetings get more efficient. We get more work done. So the conflict of interest laws help us have more efficient meetings because they refocus us to the business of the district rather than... uh, other things that may be of interest to individual trustees, which you absolutely have the right to. Each trustee here has a strong First Amendment right, both as a citizen and as a board member, to express your views, to communicate with your constituents, to be for and against what comes before the board. Uh, robust debate uh, is, is what boards are for. Um, if our legislature didn't want to have school districts governed by a body of diverse views, they would get rid of boards. The whole point is to have a body of diverse views um, in, in that situation. But, but, but we have to make sure the focus is on the district's business. And then, of course, the last is the accreditation standard four. Um, and those of you that have been doing this for a while know that accreditation teams focus on standard four. Districts go on to show cause. They, get, they, they, they lose accreditation or, or, or are at risk of losing accreditation for a violation of standard four, which is the standard that sets forth the roles of boards and administrators. And standard four says, thou shalt not violate your role. And, um, and districts have gotten into trouble. In particular, you don't, we don't see very many uh, show causes because administrators have overstepped board roles. Uh, what what does get districts in trouble is when boards overstep administrative roles and uh, and administer and superintend their districts. Um, so what are the board's roles according to the accreditation standards, which you have a, probably your primary fiduciary duty as trustees is to preserve the accreditation of your institution. Um, you set policy. You establish the budget, you hire and manage the CEO, and you oversee the legal conduct of the district. And so making sure that you are operating at that level also helps with efficiency because your meetings are not getting bogged down in administrative functions 
that should be handled by your administrators. So that is the conversation that led to the best pra the uh, shared value statement um, that we that the district utilizes. Um, so this the shared value statement in action. Um, what this is, leads us to is legally compliant and productive business meetings. And this is what I just sort of talked about on that last slide. When is the board permitted to discuss or act on an item at a properly agendized item at a regular meeting, at a properly agendized item at a special meeting, at an emergency meeting, on an emergency matter at a regular meeting, or when immediate action is required? Those are the only times you are permitted to act. And I'll go through what those criteria are in a minute. So, oh my gosh, this only happens like once a year. But I do this to make the people I present to feel better so that when your phones go off, you don't say. Um, so the challenge is, as I said, how do we make those, those limited hours count that you get together? Um, so let's start with this. Um, taking the shared value statement to the next level. What are the attributes of a well-run business meeting? What do you think? I mean, I, these are my suggestions, but you know, maybe we'll, we'll make that slide go away for a second. Well, yes, Trustee Martinson. Following the Roberts rules or some sort of parliamentary system? Procedural rules to help keep everybody up. Okay. Having them and following them, right? Sure. What else? What do people think are the attributes of a well-run business meeting? Because these are your meetings. A good agenda. What do you mean by a good agenda, Trustee? That we actually, we, that it's focused on the, the business we need to accomplish. And I think what you've said a number of times, kind of sticking to that. Mm-hmm. Can I piggyback on that? Um, yeah, having items that either the board is going to be acting on or that's leading up to an action at a future meeting versus just items that seem purely informational? And I, I think that's an action-focused meeting is just a great attribute of a, of a meeting. That's a really good point. What else? Board members being prepared coming into the meeting? Being prepared, absolutely. Um, and I will say... And we'll touch on this in a minute. Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to be quiet for a minute. Yes, being well prepared. What else? To piggyback on that is if you have a question that can be answered ahead of time to ask it ahead of time. <laughs> okay. And we'll, we're going to spend a little time talking about how do we effectively ask questions ahead of time and who do we ask those of and... Um, but what, if I would say questions uh, that can get, where there's a short answer that can be asked, I don't understand what this item means on the agenda, or I would have thought that X document would have been in the board packet, I'm not seeing it there. Quick things that the college president can address, absolutely. What else? Okay, I'm not going to make you, let's, let's take a look at, I think you've touched on a bunch of these. Um, the attributes of a meeting, an efficient meeting. Uh, part of what makes a meeting efficient is, are all the things that you've identified. Having a well-constructed agenda that's action-focused, uh, people are well-prepared uh, at those meetings. 
um, are certainly things that uh, will help in meetings efficiency. Having rules um, for uh, debate and uh, also certainly will help with efficiency. Matters focused are focused on things within the board's jurisdiction. I think you actually got more precise than that within your jurisdiction and things where the board is is gearing up for action, um, action oriented. Um, that they further the district's goals, policies, and plans. So sometimes you will need information items. Uh, part of part of board preparation is making sure that you have gotten the information from administration that you need, and some of that information is best presented in in a public meeting. Um, the state of the budget. Uh, information around budget, for example, um, is is public information, and oftentimes it's important to have that information presented um, in, in to the board in ways where the public is hearing that information as well. Um, so when you are having board reports or informational reports from staff, having it connected to work of the of the district is this related to a matter of policy that the board is considered and is addressing. Or is this related to um, an action item that we know is going to be on the agenda in two or three weeks, or uh, I'm two or three meetings, or um, you know, if 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 layoffs are being considered, then uh, discussion of budget and budget concerns is on the agenda and being presented well in advance of meetings where the board might uh, be asked to consider a, a layoff recommendation. So information items are also related to action or policy that the district and the board anticipate that they might be considering in the predictable future. Some level of flexibility, which is the ability to prioritize and address pressing issues. Um, one of the things you'll see on a slide in a minute is that a, a high-functioning board gives the board chair a fairly high level of administrative authority. Um, it's and in fact, your own rules uh, have the board chair responsible for developing the agenda in collaboration with the uh, the president of the college. So, thinking about how long an agenda is going to be, how realistic, moving things around because something pressing has come up, so something else is going to get bumped to another meeting. Um, making sure that meetings are not going over on a regular basis, which I think also creates Brown Act problems because of it impacts public access. So the flex that sort of prioritizing uh, is is very helpful in building a strong agenda. Uh, trustees engage in well-informed dialogue with each other on agenda items. That well-informed it goes to your uh, comment, Trustee Baker, which is to be prepared. Um, and so those are some of the things uh, I've identified. Um, and so then the challenge is how to adhere to the letter and the spirit of the Brown Act. Um, I do not engage in threading the needle in clever ways um, under the Brown Act. The, the point is to both follow the letter and the spirit of the act. I think I, I may have included my favorite Brown Act slide later. I'm trying to remember if I did. My practice tip is if you have... This is a legal term, icky issue, complicated, uncomfortable, controversial, time-consuming, and you really wish you could just take care of it quickly in closed session, that's a pretty good indicator that you have to take care of it in open session. Okay, uh, The Brown Act isn't there to make us do employee of the month in public session. It's there to make sure that the difficult stuff isn't open. So open session is the default. 
Um, so in any case, we adhere to the letter and the spirit of the Brown Act, but maximize flexibility, agility, and productivity. Plan ahead. Thoughtful agenda development, effective use of committees, doing your homework, timely and useful board packets. So this is where I was going to piggyback on Trustee Baker's comment, and then I wanted to stop and let you do your input first. Um, it is when we say to trustees, do your homework, uh, it, we have to make sure you're getting the information that allows you to do that effectively. And so sometimes a conversation that a board might have with a, board, with, a, with a college president is whether the packets are giving you what you need and in, in sufficiently in advance uh, to do what you need. And that also then might lead to a conversation over whether you think you need too much. And where is the line between it being, you know, stepping into the shoes of the administrator and playing your board role? And if there's no bright line, it's case by case. It's a frequent discussion of boards and conversations among board members over how much information they need. Um, but doing your, I'm acknowledging that you can't do your homework in a vacuum. Doing your homework means you're being given the information to do, as your shared value statement says, data-driven decision-making based on uh, data that's available to all trustees. And that's primarily through the board packets that are provided to you in advance. Um, no board wants to get a recommendation uh, to, to uh, terminate an employee uh, at the board meeting this thick. Right? That sort of thing. How are we making sure trustees are getting what they need uh, at the, to, to admin to, to care of their duties? Uh, primary focus is on co conducting the public's business in the open. We will talk about that and uh, applying the limited closed uh, session um, uh, permissive uh, bases and then utilizing flexibility, special and emergency meetings, immediate action, tabling and continuing matters, and um, the proper use of closed session as well as what I just mentioned, which is we're going to talk about the proper use of uh, committees. So there are four areas where boards can build efficiency and productivity. Uh, one is the exercising of authority to impose content-neutral rules on public comment. I am not going to spend a lot of time today on managing the public. Um, I'm going to, I'll give you a couple of slides to remind you uh, that it must be content-neutral and what your authorities are. This meeting is among here, this workshop, is really much more about how you can interact with each other in ways that are highly efficient. That's where I see the primary need for boards um, rather than uh, issues related to public comment. So we will talk about time management um, of meetings, the effective and lawful use of closed session, and then handling uh, special time-sensitive and time-intensive matters, regular meetings, special meetings, emergency meetings, um, and, and those sorts of things. So in order to do that, just a quick review of um, what we're talking about here. What is a meeting covered by the Act? So all of these rules that we're going to be talking about uh, uh, only apply to meetings that are covered. And a meeting is a congregation of a majority of the board 
at the same time and place to hear, discuss, or deliberate on any item within its subject matter jurisdiction. Okay. A meeting of a committee will be covered by the Brown Act. Yes, trustee. Yes, that um, there was an amendment to the um, to the act in um, several years ago. I think 2012 that changed it. For those of you that have been working with the Brown Act for a long time, there's a phrase you may remember, which is co a collective concurrence. And the Brown Act used to say if a quorum of the board or a majority of the board is meeting in the same time and place. Um, for the purpose of developing a collective concurrence. So the reason had to be to, that we we're going to all get together and try to agree on this. That got taken away. As long as you are together and you're a majority and you are hearing a matter that's within the subject matter jurisdiction of the board, then that is a meeting. Uh, the exceptions are you could, if you all suddenly realize you're at the CCLC conference and you're all in the same workshop. That's not a matter within the subject matter jurisdiction of the board. You can all be at a conference together. You can all be at a cocktail party together. You don't have to draw straws and see who has to leave. You just can't talk about the board's uh, agenda. Okay? So um, the permissive that individual or non-quorum groups may meet with administrators to receive information is permitted so long as, and I think this is on a slide in just a minute, so long as the administrator doesn't act as a conduit uh, among trustees to share information. Does that answer your question? Correct. There should not be one-way communications with a majority of the trustees without it being agendized. That doesn't apply to if you all decide to go to a city council meeting or if you happen to, you go to a conference together. That's permitted. Okay. Um, and then a meeting of a committee that's created by formal action uh, is also covered by the Brown Act, whether it's permanent or temporary whether it's a decision-making body or merely advisory, as long as it, by formal action. Now, um, this is not going to apply to your ad hoc committees, which we'll talk about um, in a little bit. What's not a meeting? Yes. Sorry. Um, the question has come up on whether a one-way distribution of email or written materials to the board is a violation of the Brown Act. You may do that. So it's fine for um, a, a an administrator or someone at the district to simultaneously, and in fact it's the better practice, to simultaneously send to all trustees a specific piece of information. Um, generally, uh, we don't want one trustee or some trustees receiving information that isn't given to all trustees. So simultaneous and giving the same information out to all trustees is fine in an email or that sort of a, uh, a communication. That I don't see any problem with that. Sometimes as a practice, if I do that, I will do one of two things. I will suggest either that each trustee gets it as a BCC only, that not to, not to, um, not to be secret, but to m ensure that trustees can't 
accidentally reply back to the administrator and hit all reply, and now we have a problem. Now we have what's called a serial meeting. Or you send it out in individual emails to each trustee that are identical, but just to ensure that trustees don't accidentally hit an all reply and now we suddenly have a serial meeting. Uh, and I will sometimes include a reminder to trustees, this is for your to receive and and be aware of. Please av avoid and refrain from discussing it until we are in a properly agendized meeting. Right. Um, otherwise, for example, you couldn't even get your board packets in advance because that's information being given by administration to, to you know, all of the trustees. So clearly that's not a violation. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what isn't a meeting? Okay, we talked about that. So, of course, what you just, what you anticipated and focused on in your questions is um, the problem of a serial meeting. And a serial meeting is when a, um, a meeting that comes to include a majority through email, telephone, or intermediaries to hear, discuss, or deliberate on any item. Note, the prohibited serial meeting is not limited to communications to develop a collective concurrence. That's what I was just uh, referring to in response to Trustee Martinson's question. Okay. So you've got to be very careful that when you, you don't... Um, when you get the information, if you pick up the phone and you call one trustee and say, can you believe what we just saw in these board packets? What are we going to do about X? And that trustee says, I don't know. Let me call trustee Y. You see, that's where you get into trouble. Because once you get to four, that's a violation. And so the better approach is to avoid it altogether. Yes, trustee Mancuso. What is an intermediary? An intermediary would be anybody who conveys a message between trustees. So, um, um, so for example, uh, President Kraft engages in a very common and very good practice, which is to have regular individual meetings with individual trustees, uh, just to keep the lines of communication open, address questions, um, so, for example, what the trustee Baker mentioned, sometimes there are misunderstandings that can be avoided because of this good regular communication that the president will have with individual trustees, and it's, it's a fairly common practice of CEOs to do that. What, what, what President Kraft has to be careful not to do, and I'm sure does not do, is when meeting with, you know, a trustee Iverson say, well, let me tell you what trustee Rios has to say about this, Right? It's, that's being a conduit. That's being an intermediary. So it's a way to give information and respond to questions from that trustee, not to share information so that trustees come to know each other's positions through an intermediary. Does that answer the question? Not exactly. So Okay. <laughs> that's why I ask. So if he is giving the information to one person from what somebody else said, then is it a serial meeting at that point, or is it when when Rios, when Trustee Rios sends it to Trustee Segura, that it 
A serial meeting occurs when the acting as an intermediary results in a quorum of the board having heard the information. As your lawyer, I say the way to avoid that is just not to engage in the behavior. Don't share between, right? When trustees share information in between meetings, it should be because it has been planned that way. The board, the, 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 the board chair has decided to appoint an ad hoc committee of two to go find something out and come back to the full board. There, it's a planned, it's under a control because we make sure that it's, it's those two or those three trustees, and now it's a controlled communication. That's that agility piece we're going to talk about in a minute. What we don't want is unfettered, uncontrolled, unregulated uh, uh, things that are happening, which could end up resulting in uh, a serial meeting, which would be a majority. And I'm probably very conservative on that, because what you don't want is dealing with uh, a Brown Act violation, because those can be problematic to correct. Um, okay. So productive compliance. Um, I've got a series of slides on productive compliance um, that identify those areas that I talked about, productive compliance related to um, uh, public comment and then related to uh, good time management in meetings. So very briefly, I'm not going to spend time on these. I really want to focus more on uh, board in engagement with, e with each other. Um, but you do have the authority to uh, impose content-neutral limitations on public comment and require that the, that the that public comment be on matters within the jurisdiction of the board. And then there are procedures you're allowed to utilize in the event there is uh, disruption uh, from the public. Um, uh, my, my, uh, pub my practice tip on this is that public comment provides boards with information to conduct its business. It is not a conversation with the public, right? Conversations with the public are, again, they are part of your First Amendment right as fellow citizens and as elected official, officials, but those conversations that you have with the public and with your constituents are things that happen outside a board meeting. Here, you're listening to what the public has to say and considering how that might affect your position on an item on the agenda your position on policy, your position on budget? Um, is it giving you information that you feel is relevant to fulfilling your role? That's what that's about. Um, so it's not a dialogue and questions back and forth and that sort of thing. Brief comments, that's it. I do have a question about that, about okay. the timing. Um, I understand that it, it's perfectly legitimate to say, okay, three minutes, two minutes, whatever, as long as everybody gets the same number of minutes. Um, is it, however, it's, it, it seems a little odd to me the first time I saw um, the agenda say that we were only going to allot 15 minutes for public comment. That I hadn't seen before. So is if, if you say everyone's going to have three minutes and then you have more than five people, um, are you at that point allowed to say we're done? Yes. Okay. Now, you don't have to say you're done. This is one of the reasons I really believe it's important to have a strong board chair um, that you're, and, and, the, and that you trust your chair. Um, 
part of what you do in building a good meeting is you try to anticipate highly controversial items where you expect there to be a lot of public comment. And those instances, you may decide you're going to build in more time for public comment because you want to hear what the public has to say. That's entirely appropriate. You try to plan ahead for that. If the board is surprised uh, by the level of interest that an item has, then maybe you, you make a, a decision at the meeting to extend public comment, uh, th which may mean you have to continue an item to another, another meeting. I'll, I'll give you the procedures for continuing an item to another meeting. You may decide that you're going to shut the debate down at 15 minutes, but you are also not going to act on the item and decide that you're going to place it on another agenda so that there's time for further comment before the board acts. Those are all ways you could, you know, so I, I, the, the fact that you cut it down, does, cut it off, doesn't mean you, you, you have to be non-responsive to a high level of public interest. And that would be a collective decision of the board, um, guided by the board chair, if you wanted to extend the time. I think it would be up to the board chair to say, we're at the 15 minutes, we have a full agenda, and we're, gonna, we're, we're closing debate now. Um, I think a trustee could say, Trustee Rios, I, I'm finding, I, I'd like to just say that um, I'm going to have trouble acting on this item without hearing by my read in the room there are at least 15 or 20 other people that wanted to speak on this item. So I'm just going to let my fellow colleagues know that it's going to be my choice to abstain on this item when it comes up uh, unless we're able to extend the debate. Can you say that as part of your deliberations with your fellow trustees? Of course you can. And then your fellow trustees will consider whether or not they agree that the level of public interest and, and the comments that may come out of it could affect, and there may be a motion to table the item. And then the board would vote on whether to table the item. That's what you can do as a board around those sorts of issues. Sure. Okay. Um, so this is where I really want to talk, time management. Ironically enough, my slide's saying 4.30 when I get to that. But actually, that's pretty good because we started 15 minutes late. So I feel like I'm right on schedule. Um, so this is where I want, I really think it's useful to spend some time building on uh, implementing these, these sort of shared values identified. Um, and several of these have their own slides. Some of them I just have on this front slide. So let me just go through these ones quickly, and then we're going to go through the slides that focus on some of these that require a closer look. Number one, I've already sp spoken about it a couple of times, and the importance of permitting a strong board chair. Boards need that. I will also suggest to you that if it makes you uncomfortable, and I'm, I have no reason to think it does, I am just say this any time I do training with a board, if it makes you uncomfortable, that's a good self-check for something you need to talk about in your board self-evaluation. Because it's a sign of uh, a need to build a level of trust and collegiality with, that is essential to a board. Um, so if it's making you uncomfortable to trust your chair to, to help build agendas, decide when it's time to close down debate, um, assign people to committees, you know, move the work forward in those administrative ways, that's a good thing to be talking about with your fellow trustees. Because that is an attribute of a high-functioning board is that you give your chair the ability to do those administrative functions. I'm not talking about making substantive decisions or policy. Of course, that's for the full board. Um, 
agenda planning and preparation, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. You've already touched on that as being a good part of your efficiency as building a good agenda. I have a few slides. We're going to look at that. Um, permissible pre-meeting communications with administration. We've already talked about that a little bit, how you can do that in, in a way without creating a serial meeting. Uh, board packets and meeting preparation, both that you are taking the time uh, to do the work and making sure you're getting the information you need to do that work well um, from your college president. The effective use of information items and staff reports. Um, Trustee Martins, I think, made a very good point on this, which is that that the, that the information reports are tied to the the action items that are coming up in the foreseeable future. It doesn't have to be the action items at this meeting or the very next meeting. But how are they tied to the work of the board? How are they tied to uh, budget approval? How are they tied to policy development? How are they tied to uh, upcoming action items? Uh, and making sure they're useful uh, to the board, I think, is a really good point. Um, addressing matters at the board level, not the administrative level. Um, so some of the times boards get bogged down, it's because they are down in the weeds. They are pouring over the blueprints. They're pouring over these things where what your job is is to trust your cabinet, trust your administrators to do their jobs. And if you don't think they're doing their jobs, then who do you talk to about that? The president. And what you're saying to the president is, you have the responsibility to make your staff do their jobs. It's part of your evaluation and your conversation with your college president. You're not evaluating the performance of other staff. That's his job. But if you have objective, data-driven reasons to think that staff are not performing their jobs well, then you make part of your inquiry and your conversation with your college president. Are you making sure that your cabinet members are doing timely evaluations of their staff? How are you, how are you tracking performance? Uh, and that becomes a conversation at the president level. Yes, trustee. Oops. Kind of going back to the slide where you said what's within our jurisdiction, um, but there's, there's so many things that we're approving at every meeting. We're approving the personnel doc. We're approving the warrants, the payments. Um, if there's disagreements about those things, I, it's the job of the president, but we're approving those documents, and it feels like tacit approval if you vote for those, those things and where there's maybe where you have issues with them. So I think you, 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 actually, you bring up a really important point, um, and, um, and I think... It, it, it is a point that trustees really all over the state would have made the same. I mean, everybody struggles with drawing the line between not wanting to be a rubber stamp. And I'm, I never, I mean, you're my, my client at the end of the day is, is the quorum of the board. Um, and I would never ask a board to act as a rubber stamp. That's not the point. But the, the, um, uh, the, on personnel matters, let's use that as an example because you brought that up. Um, you are trusting the judgment of your staff to make good decisions around recommendations for uh, hires, uh, recommendations for 
promotions, recommendations for disciplinary action, recommendations for termination. So the question is, what level of information would legitimately cause a trustee to have a concern that they're not being given the full picture or that the information is questionable um, so that you have a concern that you're not getting the information, right? That, I think, is the level that you would look at. What's the quality of the information that I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm getting? Have I been handed an investigative report that's been attached to a disciplinary action where I read that investigative report and I see tremendous problems with having relied on that report, right? Or um, am I seeing the, you know, am I, that sort of a fairly high level of review, where am I seeing anything to tell me that something is wrong with the, level, with, with the decision that's being made? So I, in a way, I would say, and I think this is consistent with standard four, the assumption is that staff is doing their jobs until you see something that's giving you a concern that they're not. And that that, that, that thing that's giving you a concern is objective and data-driven information that is available to all of the trustees. And then I think you, that you bring that to your president and say, this is the concern. How did you reach this decision? What's your basis for it? But if you don't find out about it until the board packet comes out the night before, then and then what do you do? If you have concerns about, for example, a personnel doc question, I, I, I um, in the abstract, then I, I think that uh, getting a board packet the night before maybe in some instances a, a challenge. Um, I would want to know what the information is and what's causing the concern, because I do think that the concern is often because of, of, of board micromanaging of administrative decisions, and I do get concerned about that. And so it's, it's hard to answer the question in the abstract. I'm really not trying to dodge the, the, the answer. I would say um, I have seen times where I think boards are handed uh, information way too late on things where they really need to be taking a close look. Uh, and other times where trustees are getting over and overly involved um, in certain types of matters. So I think it depends. I, I hate to sound like the lawyer and say it depends um, uh, on the matter. Uh, but on personal, I would say personal matters are, uh, well, actually, I won't say that. I think that I'll take that back. I was going to say those tend to be where I see the most, I have the most concern over micromanagement, but I also have seen construction plans that boards get overly involved with in other areas as well. Um, so it's a, it's a it's an uh, it's a work in progress uh, to and uh, and and um, and you have to look at it as a case by case basis. But I think trustees really need to check themselves as to what's causing them to question a matter and um, is it really something that is at the board level role as opposed to the administrative role. Yes, Trustee Iverson. Really, with my, my dodgy little answer? Awesome. <laughs> right. 
you know, one of the things that that is sort of a signal to where this balance should be is that the the standard practice throughout all of the system, and you would be completely paralyzed without it, and that's the consent agenda. Right. And the consent agenda is where administration is saying, this is the stuff that's really pretty straightforward, and we don't see an area where there's going to be a lot of concern. And I would say, unless you have a huge red flag on a consent agenda item, that that's one of the things that bogs boards down, is pulling things off consent agendas. Sometimes it's entirely warranted. I'm really not saying don't ever do it. Uh, but But be careful with that, because if we're talking about having an efficient meeting, that's one of the things that's going to bog you down. So what's your good, compelling reason for pulling something off a consent agenda? What's the information that you're seeing that's causing you to, uh, and is it is it information, you know, that's, I, I'm not sure how much I can say about that in the in the absolute hypothetical. Yeah, Trustee. I, mean, I might be answering my own question, but I think maybe for some of these issues, maybe it's what you talked about earlier about getting explanations up front in advance rather than being surprised, um, you know, before a board meeting. Um, and then also maybe addressing things at the policy level, more at the policy level. I, I completely agree with, with both of those. Now, wh- how much information we need beforehand and what are the mechanisms to get that information is another thing we're going to talk about um, in just a minute. So I'd love to also come back to that when we talk about those other points because I think those are, are, are good points. Um, uh, and then useful board discussion and board reports. Let me tell you what I mean by that about time management. Um, Board discussions are directed to fellow trustees, not the public. So you're taking your time to sway your colleagues, to convince them of your position. I mean, we're not, don't shy away from robust uh, public discourse. That's what this is all about. But it is to explain to your fellow trustees what your position is, why you hold that position, based upon uh, data, other objective information that you feel is persuasive and should inform your fellow trustees. You are not talking, you're not making speeches to the public, right? You have plenty of opportunities to do that, uh, but that's what you do as, a, as an elected official outside of a board meeting. Um, and you're doing this to inform, uh, and then that's, what I, that's sort of my comment on um, discussion. And then the board reports are to inform your fellow trustees on matters that will assist them in shaping policy or taking action. Right? Uh, a, you know, a, a report that just describes the activities that you have engaged in in the last month, put that in the newsletter that you prepare for the, your constituents. Put it in your blog. Um, I mean, that's, it's wonderful. Let people know that you went to this event or that event or... Uh, uh, that sort of thing. But this is really for your fellow trustees. Now, I don't want to be, a, a, you know, a killjoy around these things. Um, I think it would be, f- it's fine to say, I just want to say I went to the uh, ribbon cutting for the new science building. It was wonderful to see all of the new lab equipment. Um, and that, you know, if you can say that in one sentence, you know, great. And you let the trustees know that you went and you saw it and the, the building looks great. I mean, enjoy the, the good work of, of, your, uh, of your employees and, and the good work of your bonds and whatever it is. I think you know, brief comments like that are fine. Um, 
I'm, you can't be robotic in all of this. I'm not suggesting that. But be careful that you don't stray into, you know, overuse of your limited airwaves uh, on things that are not really going to help your fellow trustees um, develop their opinions around policy and that sort of thing. So that's just, again, it's just going to be some good internal personal judgment on how you're using that time. Okay, so that sort of quick overview of uh, time management. Uh, a few of these I, I wanted to uh, drill down a little bit more. The first of them is agendas. Um, these are your tools for a well-run meeting, right? They, uh, they provide focus to the board and the public. They help the legislative body plan and prioritize. They improve communication and they build institutional memory. Um, so agendas are, are, are useful for a variety of reasons. So how can, we, um, how can we help the agendas help us in these meetings? Um, well, a couple of things about preparation and prioritization. Um, this is one of the places where public community college and school districts are under a little bit more of a challenge than our other public entities because you are subject to a provision of the Education Code as well as the Brown Act in that members of the public have the right to place an item directly onto an agenda of a community college or K-12 district. That right does not exist for a uh, city council meeting, a mosquito vector district meeting, a county No other public bodies, just our uh, school districts, they do have that right. You do have procedures uh, in your board policies, um, as you should, over how the public is able to put a item on the agenda, who they have to provide notice to, etc. Um, but, but the law does not create a right in the public to place an item on a specific meeting. Um, they have the right to put it on a future agenda item under the law, and I would say it would be thwarting the spirit, if not the letter of the law, if the approach then was just to take that public request and keep kicking it down the road. Uh, I think it has to be put on the agenda within a reasonable time frame. But I think in building the agenda, which by your own board policies of also is correctly a task delegated to the board chair and college president, they can say, okay, we have this request from Ms. Smith to... Uh, place on the agenda um, concerns over the uh, the uh, poor lighting in the I don't know I'm making something up uh, something related to the facilities but this next let's look at we've got a really really full agenda uh, when do we think we can get this on and we say well uh, we actually are p picking up an issue around facility improvement in uh, three months, and we're going to be having a full report, that would be a great meeting to put this on, because we're going to be getting reports, and so we'll put that on. Is that going to be a That's perfectly appropriate. So you can look at when in the reasonable future would it make the most sense to put that on the agenda. Um, yes? If a public member um, requests something on the agenda that we don't really feel is our business at the district, 
you, no, you, you can reject if it's outside of your jurisdiction. So a request to put on the board agenda your discussion of U.S. foreign policy is, is not something you have to do. Um, if, if, what I will say is that if you – now, of course, lawyers have their own um, – uh, twisted senses of humor, uh, but uh, I really – there's a particular opinion of the uh, Santa Monica Housing Authority uh, over this issue, which is quite entertaining because of the fistfight that ensues over U.S. foreign policy uh, debates uh, at the um, Santa Monica Housing Authority. So, uh, no, you don't have to uh, accept items for the agenda that are outside your jurisdiction. Okay. And it would, if that were to happen, if someone was to uh, put in a request, would it be um, the staff's job to yes. inform them? Okay. Yes, so staff would manage that. Exactly. Yes, Trustee Iverson. Um, I don't think I've seen that specifically. I think I've seen um, close cousins to that where, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure whether it's, I, I think there are things that are um, problematic practices because they indicate a level of dysfunction on a board that aren't necessarily illegal. Um, and I certainly have seen situations where um, trustees are, are working closely with members of the public in, in planning how things might unfold at a meeting. Um, uh, that might be something worth a board discussion over why that's happening and why a trustee, you know. But I, I yes, I have seen similar things happen. But I, I, I don't think there's, there, there's anything un, unlawful in, in that. It, it may be a, a lack of efficiency and it may not be in the best interest of the district and something to look at. But... Um, so, uh, agenda, it's very important that the board president, uh, the board chair, have the discretion and the authority to prioritize board member requests as well. So one issue is pu public requests for things going on the agenda. The second is board members requesting things going on the agenda. And how should that happen? Um, and uh, every single trustee may have a burning issue. They're not all, all going to get on the same agenda. Can't happen. And so it, the chair has to make some decisions about how things are going to be uh, prioritized, and that's one of the important functions of the chair. Yeah. So is it kind of like the members of the public that it may not get on the next agenda, but it should it be eventually on an agenda if a board member requests an item to be on I agenda? think if it's within the jurisdiction of the board, yes. Now, I would go back to your board value statement. That's why I, I, I put it up there. What is, what is your board value statement? There will be no backtracking. Once the board makes a decision, you will not go back again unless the board has received new information that a, a majority of the board agree uh, could affect the board's decision or action on an item. So I think that the board chair would have some authority based on the, the value statement that you all agree to to say to a trustee, that was on the last agenda. We're not putting it on again. I think that type of thing would be okay where they're seeing repetition. Um, but as long as it's something within the jurisdiction, p 
part of an efficient board is one where there is that level of collegial uh, respect. So I think that if a trustee asks for something on the agenda, it goes on. Now then you as trustees are thinking, well, is it an action item? Is it an item that's going to further our board policy? Is it related to the budget? You know, is it an act? So, so that early point that you made that efficient agendas are action oriented is a great point. Uh, so, as with most things around best practices, this is about individual board conduct and decisions. Um, the law doesn't say you can't put an item on the agenda that isn't an action item. That's up to individual trustees and for all of you to hold each other to account on. Um, so, uh, but the short answer to the question, Trustee Martinson, is yes. I think that for the most part, if it's within the jurisdiction, if a trustee requests something that gets on the agenda, it should be on the agenda within a reasonable time. Um, uh, a couple of other things that will help with board efficiency in a way that's legally compliant is consider t the timing of things like public hearings and items of high public interest. Uh, what you don't want to do, which would offend certainly the spirit of the Brown Act, is go, okay, let's wait until the very end of the meeting when everybody's gone home, and then we'll have the public hearing, right? We want to make sure that we're scheduling those things that are of high public interest at times that are more accessible to the public. Um, so we want to think about doing those early in a meeting so that the people can participate in that part, and then leave so they don't have to hear the board report on X, Y, and Z that uh, they don't need to hear or the consent agenda or whatever. So these are the things that the board chair and the president will think about uh, scheduling. It also goes to your comment a little bit, Trustee Baker, about thinking about is this an item where we need to maybe factor in some additional public comment, right? So thinking about that, is it something of such a high interest or is it a statutory public hearing? There are certain things you're required to hold public hearings on. Maybe that's an appropriate time to hold a special meeting so that you don't have a gigantic public hearing that's going to be right plunk in the middle of a meeting where you've got a ton of other business you need to take care of. That might be a great, that might be appropriate time for a special meeting. Um, um, here, you made it, you, you realized that you wanted to do a refresher on board practices and Brown Act. You made a decision to come early and do this from four to six so that, I mean, I do these, I often do these, I probably usually do these at after closed session, in the middle of, a, of an open meeting where, where boards already have a full agenda. Um, the last time I did this was for a board where they put me at the end so they get to their agenda first. And so I, I went on at 8.30 at night to a board that went, okay, now we're going to do our ethics training, right, at the end of the meeting. Um, and... So those are those are board agenda management issues. This was a good way to do this. Um, uh, you get it done in a way that doesn't intrude upon your business meeting. Uh, uh, so thinking about how you're going to schedule uh, things and planning is is very helpful. Uh, consider the timing of lengthy closed session items as well. One of the things that uh, boards often do is they will put a placeholder. Uh, close, continuation of closed session at the end of the meeting so that you can get into open session on time uh, and then go back into closed session if you need to. Um, uh, occasionally, 
uh, coming into open session late, uh, a few minutes late, 15 minutes late on an urgent matter is, is not going to be the end of the world. But if a board is regularly getting into open session late, um, it, it, imp- it negatively impacts uh, the purpose of the agenda, which is to inform the public of what and when you're going to hold your public meeting so they can come and 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 participate. Yeah, Trustee Martinson. Going back to the, really quickly, to the um, board member requests for agenda items, um, right now that's not addressed in our board policy. It describes how the public puts a member uh, an item on the agenda, um, and then we don't have a spot on our agenda for future agenda items. So I've been bringing it up during my board report. So I'm just wondering if you, what you think is the best practice. Should it be the same process as the public, that it's submitted in writing by a certain time before the meeting? Should there be a placeholder on the agenda for future agenda items? Should they be in the board report? What do you think about that? Um, I, I'm, I'm fairly agnostic on that. What I would want is a process that doesn't bog down the meeting and gives the board president and the board chair and the president the time to receive the request and then dis- then in board planning decide the next meeting it should be on. I would say I would probably not put it in board reports only because uh, I hear from lots of trustees in lots of districts that board reports are too long and that, um, and that they feel their meetings get bogged down. So anything that would encourage a shorter board report, I kind of like. Um, so if it's in a board report, it may affect the way the report is done. The, the trustee is going to use that as an opportunity to explain why they think this should be on the agenda and why they think it's so important. And suddenly there's a whole discussion or a whole speech attached to the request. That I think I would say maybe that's not the best way to do it. You could put on the agenda request for future items right at the end, and the board chair can go around and say, any requests for future meetings? Boom, boom, boom. And they just say the item. Then the board chair, can no Brown Act violation in this, can call you up and say, Trustee Martinson, you made a request that we put on a future agenda, uh, no, uh, a, a diversity report I don't, on Employee, you know what we're doing for diversity, diversifying our our, our staff. Uh, could you give me a, some a, a little more information about what it is you're looking for to be on the agenda, so he could follow up with you and find out what you wanted? Uh, I think that would be fine. Um, uh, the doing it in writing, I don't have a problem with that. I think that would be up to how the board chair wants to ask for those things. Um, and whether that seems helpful versus not. Do you have an opinion, Trustee Rios, how you would like to receive requests yeah, for agenda items? I do items? have an opinion. What? <laughs> I do have an opinion. One would be that uh, I actually would, would like them in writing so that I don't interpret what it is you're asking for, uh, and then it be, you know, at least you know, a week before meeting, you're, you're hoping to have it considered for, well, actually, it's more like a week and a half. Yeah. there could be some staff time. Right. And, um, I mean, the more time, the better. One, because, like Ron said, the staff has to go through it. Ron and I talk about things. 
the closer it is to the meeting, I mean, it's just the more difficult it is to try to fit it in. Um, so, it, yeah, I think um, one think about anything that you think about immediately, it, it's probably just not going to happen. Just, just simply because most things are already kind of placed into the agenda and we don't have time to talk about them. I would say if, if it's an emergent, if it's a serious and emergent issue, you know, something that rises to that level, I'm not sure what that might be. I mean, certainly we could entertain, you, you know, a week, a half or something. The day before it would, is almost a... Well, the day before is not going to be possible because your agenda is already posted. Um, but when do you, uh, when, um, Trustee Rios, President Kraft, when do you meet to set the agenda? The Tuesday before the following Thursday, is that right? About 10, 12 days, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, at minimally, you would want to have it before that meeting. Yeah. I and would then I think what. Before that, so what? that I could figure out what it is. And, and so, maybe like two weeks in advance? Yeah. And, th- and then the decision at that planning meeting might be. Um, this this is going to have the meeting's very full. We're going to have to put this on at a future meeting, and it also depends on what the end item is and whether it's going to involve um, any staff preparation, um, and that may have to push it out for two reasons. One is staff will need time to do it, and then the second, which is the, one of the points that we're going to talk about in just a minute, that I've talked with you guys about before, is that no single trustee has the authority to cause staff to have to do work. It really must be some collective concurrence of the board. I don't think it has to be a majority, but there has to be a strong feeling on the board that staff time is needed on something before staff should be pulled away from their other duties. Uh, Otherwise, imagine how paralyzed a district would be. One trustee is super interested in the physical safety of the plant, Another trustee is super interested in diversity. Another is super interested in um, uh, staff efficiency. Another one is concerned about the board, the, 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 uh, the budget. Every single one of those uh, makes a request for a board report from, uh, from a staff member. I do know districts that are paralyzed the week before a board meeting because they're all preparing things for the particular interests of particular trustees. Um, they, are, they are the president's trust employees. I know it's, 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 it's um, I'm saying that a little bit bluntly, but um, the, the president of the college decides the work of the employees of the district and where it needs to be done in, for the students and for the staff, right? Um, and if individual trustees get to ask for this report or that study or this thing, and that means all the trustees can do it. So the check on that is for the, the, the board to make sure that if staff are going to be burdened, it's because there is some collective agreement of the board that this is information that the board will find useful in Acting on an item, setting policy, uh, review—you know, uh, approving a budget, 
you know, whatever it is it's being asked to do. Um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself on the slide, so when I get to the slide, we'll skip it, but it sort of is triggered by some of your questions, so I'm mentioning it now. Um, for, those of you, for those of you that may remember when we, did, when we developed the value statement, I really do believe in doing your best to operate through what I think of as a consensus model. It's on these sorts of governance issues, not a majority rule motto, uh, model. Um, what's the difference? In the collegial discourse you have with each other, you're respecting the views of a strongly held minority. If you don't do that, the strongly held views of the minority never calm down and keep coming back, right? But um, and that doesn't and that means um, some critical mass. So you've got three trustees, not four, but you've got three that say, you know what? If I don't hear another report that explains X, Y, and Z, I can't approve this. Well, in that situation, I would counsel a board chair not to say, sorry, majority rules, we're not going to do it. I would, out of respect for a um, a strongly held minority, you would say, yep, let's get the report. And that's one of the places you want to give your board chair the discretion to be able to manage this, you know, herding of cats that we, that lawyers are and trustees are, we all are a bunch of cats. Um, and trust trust him or trust her to, to play that role. Um, one trustee wanting something very, very badly, I would say, is not enough to burden a staff member who is, I mean, you know better than anybody. Think about the number of hats that your employees have had to start, the increase in hats they've had to wear over the last five years. Everybody is overtaxed. Everybody is working hard. So we're not going to ask an employee to do something because one trustee thinks it's important. It's not fair to the staff or the students. So, but that a strongly held minority, yes. Okay. Um, got a little bit off constructing agendas, but it was sort of in response to some of the questions. So constructing agendas that get the job done, the goal is the agendas that help the board complete their business. Issues, when and how should agendas be constructed? We've talked about that. Each board member has requested an urgent matter to be placed on the next meeting agenda. What do you do? We've talked about it. Uh, a member of the public has requested a matter to be placed on the agenda. What are your options? We've talked about it. So we sort of, through your questions, we anticipated the slide. I don't have to repeat it here. Um, okay. We've also touched on this. Let me just do it quickly because I want to get to some of these other topics. I'm looking at our time. Um, permissible communications with administrators. This is this discussion we had, uh, Trustee Mancus, who were saying, well, what does it mean to be an intermediary? Uh, uh, between administrators and individual members of groups less than a quorum are permitted to convey information or answer questions if staff does not communicate the board members' comments or positions or act as an intermediary between trustees. Okay. Any other questions about that? I think we talked about that uh, earlier. Um, board packets and meeting preparation. These are essential for efficient meetings. Um, if if a if if you if a if a critical mass of trustees is feeling that you are not getting the information that you need in the time that you need it, 
that is a good conversation to have with your uh, president. Um, so you can talk about what is it you think you're needing that you're not getting, and you you will, and either it will result in okay, thank you for that. We're going to do better, and we're going to get you the information you need. Or it may result in a we think that's a forest trees issue, and you're getting down on the weeds. It may get in a actually we provided that information, and here's where we provided it. But it's a good discussion to have, um, and uh, because I in. In telling trustees to do your homework, um, I don't take that lightly, and I know that it means that staff has to make sure they're getting you the information in order to do that well. Um, please remember that the information you get is for your eyes only. The district will arrange public access to the public portion. So e when you get your board packet, some of it's public for the public open session. You also will get your confidential closed session packet. The fact that part of your packet is public session doesn't mean it's there for, for you to start handing those things out. It's your packet. Keep it that way. Your staff, the, the, the president's staff, will make sure that the public portion is properly posted and properly made available to the public. Why do I say that? I say that because, as your lawyer, I want to keep you from making a mistake. And so I... You know, if, if you have any doubt, ask my children. I am a control freak. Just please hold on to your own packet and let, let, your, let staff make sure that the portions that are properly public are properly posted. Yes? So the only thing we get in advance is, is the same thing that's online. So we can't repost that or put that send that out or put that on Facebook. I mean, we don't get the closed session packet. We don't get anything. We just get what everybody else gets. Well, right? Um, I know. I, I mean, I have, I've, I've prepared things for your closed session packet in the past. It, it, I think that's great if it means that it, it sort of suggests that uh, you don't have very many of those challenging closed session issues. That's, that's, a, that's a kind of a well-run district, perhaps. But um, uh, I would say it's, it's not the function of the trustees to redistribute. I would, let, I would allow that. There's, I would allow staff to do that. That would be my reaction. But um, uh, I, I, I don't think that's a legal requirement. I just think that it's a, um, you know, under standard four and being attuned to 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 role, uh, that would be my thought. I also am sensitive, though, to your First Amendment rights uh, in communicating with your constituents. Um, if there's something on the agenda that you think is particularly important, uh, and you want your the public to know about it, and you think it's important for people to, I think that's your First Amendment right as an individual elected official. I just forward out what's on, what's on available to everybody. Basically, it's what's on the board docs. That's well, I, I don't think about. you're violating privacy or, or or something. You've asked sort of your questions have been on two different levels. Some of them are about what's legal, and some of them about what is a best practice. So what I'm saying is, I don't see a legal impediment to reinforming or reposting something that is clearly public. It's not my favorite practice. That would be what I would say. Okay. Um, 
So then um, let's talk about uh, board efficiency and staff reports. So Trustee Martinson made a really good point that staff reports should be on items that are directly relevant to the actions of the board or things that are coming up. I think that's a very good uh, thought on that. Um, what is their purpose? To give the board information on relevant matters within its purview. Very consistent with what Trustee Martinson was suggesting. How should board members interact with staff? I think that's where we sometimes have some questions. Um, my, I think that the, the way to approach this is that if there is a brief clarifying question, you don't understand a term that's being used, or sometimes, and I'm very guilty of this too, is I get lost in the alphabet soup. And I'm talking about the IDEA or the ACA or the CCLC and forget that that's, you know, obnoxious. Uh, so you may have, somebody may throw out an acronym you don't know. Or you're looking at a chart and not understanding how to interpret it. Um, if, you know, brief questions to help understand the information that's before you, I think are entirely appropriate. What about requests for more information? So the report is being given, and there's a, a whole topic that you think is really relevant that ha isn't being addressed. And so then, what do you do with that? Do you ask the, um, the employee who's making the presentation the substantive question in the open session? Ms. Smith, I, I'm surprised that your report doesn't include an overview of X, Y, and Z. Could you please give me a summary of the impacts of this on that? Da, 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 da. Is that what we do in the open session? And I would say no. Uh, I, that's that. First of all, think about the way it bogs down the meeting. Um, this is something that will protract the report and protract the meeting based upon the interest of a single trustee. And what we want to do is both in the meeting and outside the meeting, make sure that the time of staff to respond to the questions of the board are things that the board generally agrees are things the board needs in order for the board to act. It's an efficiency issue. It's the, are we going to have... The board, the 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 the, uh, the employees' time taken with responding to the concerns and interests of a single trustee, and the worry is that every trustee has their own particular areas of interest, and suddenly we could have a meeting that's just about the individual interests of every single trustee, and then nothing gets done. So. Um, Here's my practice tip, and it's, you've heard it before, those of you that were here the last time I, I talked about it, but I'm reinforcing it. Um, board requests for staff work. First, we don't ask staff to work harder during the meeting by answering questions that they are surprised by. I also would suggest that that may not be the most collegial or respectful way to treat staff um, and we want our staff who come before the board with reports to feel supported and respected when they do that, even if you think the report may not have been everything you wanted it to be. Guess what? That's a meeting. That's another thing that you get to talk to your uh, president about. President Kraft, 
How are you planning to hold your employees accountable so that when they come before us, they're giving us better reports? That, can, is that a conversation to have with your, your college president? Absolutely. But that's the level you talk about performance at, which is these are the concerns I'm seeing. The only person I'm going to evaluate is the college president. And, I'm, and so I will, I'm letting you know one of the things I'm going to be interested in is how you're helping and supporting and creating standards for the people that report to you. You're not evaluating those other people, right? So um, if you want more information than you are hearing from staff, then this is the way I think it works. Uh, first of all, all requests for staff work are funneled through the president of the college. It's the president of the college who decides who has the time, the expertise, the ability to prepare whatever is being requested. There should be no requests going from a trustee to any other employee. I, I'll, I, I was, uh, this is many, many, many years ago, but I had quite a, I don't think I've ever told you guys this story before. I was at a, um, a uh, state department of education meeting, right? So they're the K-12 version of the Board of Governors. And Delane Easton was state superintendent at the time. And I'm, okay, I'm sitting there waiting for my waiver hearing or whatever it is I'm doing before the board. And they had swinging doors in that I felt I, like I was in the Wild West. She came bursting through the swinging doors. She marched up to the podium, interrupted the speaker, and she said, the staff of the State Department of Education are my staff. They're not your staff. You do not assign work to my staff. It's like, whoa. And then she marched out. So I'm not suggesting anything quite that harsh. But if you want work done by staff, you let the president know. It's not calling up somebody and saying, I'd like a report on this. I imagine what would happen if every trustee did that and how paralyzed staff would be. That's number one. The second is, that on this part, is that the communication to the college president needs to be based on this collective concurrence of the board that the information will assist you to carry out policy development, supervision of the president of the college, budget review, or legal oversight. Otherwise, it's just a personal interest that is, shouldn't be taxing staff. So that's the way I think it should go. And that collective concurrence is what I've described before. And that is, I'm not saying that it has to only be an absolute majority and we're going to ignore three trustees saying, we really feel we need this. Use a consensus-based model where you're respecting the, the, the concerns of a strongly held uh, minority. That's when staff should get taxed. So what happens during a board meeting if a trustee says, I, I really feel like we need more information on X. And, and you should, some of you should know the answer to this because we discussed this when we did the board values. What should happen when an individual trustee says, I would like more information on X. I don't see how we can possibly act on this matter if we don't have X, Y, or Z. What happens? Well, we should check with the rest of the board to see if there's interest by enough people or a strongly held 
minority. Yeah. And that, I think, is, again, the role of the board chair. The board chair says, okay, I'm hearing a request from, you know, Trustee Mancuso that uh, we get more information on uh, this uh, projected budget deficit before we uh, were asked to approve this budget. Do other people feel like we need this additional information before we uh, act on the recommendation of staff to approve the budget? And the chair will look around the room. And they, the chair may see a lot of heads go, yeah, I'm actually a little concerned. I, I feel like we need more data. In which case, the chair will look to the college president to say, uh, President Kraft, could you please have a, have a report for us uh, at the next meeting? And then President Kraft will decide who he's going to assign that to. Or the chair may look around the room and not and see, nope, we're ready. The rest of us are ready. We've looked, we've looked at everything like we feel we need to, and we're ready to go. And then... So the, then, then the chair is going to, then we're not going to make the request of staff. It's not, we're not going to do the work. That's how it should work. Yes. I can't hear you. This shouldn't be happening in trustee reports either, right? I don't think I know what you mean by it shouldn't be happening in trustee reports. If an individual trustee has personnel documents or staff direction that they want to see, we shouldn't be requesting it in trustee reports, right? Individual. Oh gosh, no. That I, I that's I'm if I'm even understanding you. Um, a trustee report is a one-way. You know, I went and I saw the new science building and I thought it looked great. Or I did this. Or and they're short. They should be like maybe two minutes. Uh, so they don't turn into campaign speeches, which would be using public time for campaigning and isn't what we should be doing during our public meetings, right? I think those are brief, short reports. Requests for information should happen organically in the context of your debate on a specific action item. Why else ask for it, right? I, where, I, where I can imagine a trustee bringing up wanting more information is they're being asked to vote on something. And the trustee says, I don't feel like I can vote on this because I haven't gotten enough information. And so then... The chair is going to say, do other people agree? Do we feel like we need more information? Right? Or it may even come in the form of a motion. I move that we table this matter until we get more information. I, you know, that's where I think organically it's most likely to come up. Now, I don't want to be overly rigid. I, th I, I think it could come up in response to an information item. Thanks for that information, but I feel like we need more information. And then the board chair would say, okay, there's a request for more information. And other trustees may say, you know, I don't see this coming up anytime in the future. I, I don't feel like I, I'm having a burning desire to know this right now. Or trustees might say, yeah, I think in about three months you're going to ask us to vote on this. And let's front load this because I don't think we're getting enough information yet. Those are great conversations to have as trustees. So I would say that the logical place for a request for additional information from staff would come up is when the board is considering a matter whether it's an action item or an information item, and a trustee is reacting to that by saying, I'm not hearing, I, I feel like I need more information. That's when that would work, that would completely support what Trustee Martinson said in the beginning, which is that it's an action-oriented agenda. If you're putting it in, in a board report that's disconnected from any of the items on the agenda, that's not action-oriented. That would be my thought. Okay, I, um, I'm going to do one more, and then I'm going to 
move this along a little bit. We will go to 6.15 because we started 15 minutes late, but even with that, I think we're getting a little behind. Yeah. I just have a quick, um, so let me just clarify. When uh, you have a question about something financial, I'm not going to direct that to Bob and say, what about this item? I'm going to go to the chair and say, Mr. Chair, I think I need more information on this. Yes. Okay. And then the chair is going to say, do other people agree? And then the chair is going to read the room. And, and, and to anticipate a possible question, is, is that a Brown Act violation? Because you didn't put on the agenda, read the room to see if we want more information? No. No. You're not voting. You're not taking an action. You're just responding to that. That's fine. And so you'd say, uh, I, and then the chair is going to either say, yep, okay, we're going to make a request for, for additional information at the next meeting, or no. And that request is what goes to uh, the president, who can then delegate it to Robert or whoever he wants to delegate it to. Super efficient. And it gets you the information you need to do your jobs. Yes. So, Last one, and then I've got to move right. this along a little bit. So we, we can ask clarifying questions, Absolutely. like you said. But you're talking about if it's something bigger, like we're gonna need, they're going to need to do more research, they're going to need to bring up a report back, something like that, that we go back to the board chair. Yes, I, that's a good way to put it. Thank you. Except, sorry, I have the jump. I'm so sorry, what? Um, except if you're asking a question about, well, hey, why is there a line item here in the this budget or in these warrants that some department spent, I don't know, $10,000 on tinting windows? That seems to me like you're getting in the weeds. So one of the challenges, I agree, I agree with that example. And the um, that I wouldn't call that a clarifying question. And then this is where, you know, it, there are not enough rules to enforce, uh, I'm going to. This is going to sound. I don't mean to sound good behavior. I don't know how else to say it. Right. At the end of the day, it will be up to each individual trustee to to conduct themselves consistent with the values that you have adopted. Um, and remember one of the other board values, which is no single trustee can uh, um, bog a board down. They could, a single trustee can only do that with the permission of the rest of the trustees. And, um, and so holding each other to account collegially and respectfully is part of your responsibility. So you, it, it will be up to a trustee to say, you know, Trustee Rios, respectfully, I think you're getting down into the weeds. I don't think we're here to ask about the tinted windows. And you know, it's going to be up to each of you to to have that conversation with each other. Want, um, but you know, okay. Um, so, board reports. I think we've we've pretty much covered this. But what's their purpose? To provide information relevant to matters within the board's purview. What is not their purpose? To communicate to the public regarding your members' activities. No speeches to the public. Speak to your colleagues. You also don't have an obligation to speak on every item on the agenda. Only if you've got something to say, go for it. But you don't have to speak on every item because you're not there to make sure the public knows your opinion on every item. You're there to educate your fellow trustees as to your thinking and the reason for your thinking. 
So to maximize efficiency and avoid blurring board business and campaigning, keep board reports brief and to the point. And again, I will reiterate, you have very strong First Amendment rights, both as citizens and as elected officials, to communicate with your constituents, to express your views. Um, but you do that on, on your time, in your blogs, in your newsletters. You don't, use, you don't use board time for that. Okay, yes. I have a brownout question with... Um, I just want you to know that the slide I'm on says 5 o'clock. That's, how, that's where we are right now. Because I've really got to, I don't want to cut you off, Trustee, but if, if we could take this question, then let me just move this along just a little bit. That would be great. Okay. Yes. Uh, Brown Act and board reports or even staff reports, I'm wondering, because those items that are being reported on are not agendized, so these should be one-way communications, right? They shouldn't, there shouldn't be, they shouldn't spark a discussion between board members. And is discussion even allowed? Uh, well, the information items are, are agendized. Um, to, to, I guess not some of the, uh, maybe like the president's report, it doesn't itemize what's going to be covered. Um, but I would say for a whole host of reasons, it's not a discussion. It's a one-way communication. I'm not sure I would analogize it in that way, and I'm not sure, but, but I would say yes. When you do a rep board report, it's not for a discussion and a back and forth. And again, keeping them very, very short, I think, is ideal. Um, I have some boards, by the way, that have just eliminated them because they, they, they cannot help themselves, and they just, if they have them on there, and they, 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 they go on and on a bit too much. So some, some boards have just eliminated board reports altogether. If it does spark a discussion, is that a Brown Act violation, or that's acceptable? If it does spark a discussion between board members, maybe. I think that it could. I, I mean, obviously, it, if you took an action, that would be a violation. I mean, let's think about the Brown Act from a operational sense. What's the purpose of the Brown Act? The Brown Act is to make sure that the public has fair notice of what the board is going to discuss and act upon so they can come and bear witness to it and speak to it in ways that may help shape the thinking of the board before it takes action. And so um, I would say an, an occasional exchange that happens spontaneously or a brief comment in response Okay, so for example, if, the, if a chair said, thank you very much for that, I, was, I really enjoyed hearing about the science building, you have not committed a Brown Act violation. Also, also the Brown Act doesn't prohibit those sorts of just brief niceties and courtesies. Um, but if I had a board that had a regular pattern of board reports evolving into 15-minute, 20-minute, half-an-hour discussions on substantive items, that would be a concern because that would mean there's a pattern of the public not being aware of that the board is going to engage in a pretty substantive discussion on a matter of high public interest when they had no idea that that was going to happen and didn't, weren't there to bear witness to what the different views are uh, of, the, of the trustees. So it's a, it's a continuum. I think you have to exercise some good judgment around it. For the most part, trustee reports should not be generating discussion. It should be a brief, this is what I've done, and that's it. It should not be the place where you're requesting information. That just seems really off point for a board report. I've not heard that before. Um, and um, just keeping them super short. Okay. Um, 
Okay. So let's switch gears and talk about uh, the effective and lawful use of closed session. Um, as you know, the assumption is that you do the public's business in public. We interpret the exceptions very narrowly. Um, the common exceptions, and I'm going to talk briefly about these, are uh, pending litigation, personnel matters, uh, discipline dismissal release, uh, conferences with your labor negotiator, conferences, uh, I'm sorry, uh, real property transactions, and uh, student discipline and complaints. Uh, the cardinal rule is that you go into closed session very cautiously, but once you are there, it's Vegas. Okay, nothing leaves the room. Um, the exception being uh, in the context of a um, the filing of a, an alleged complaint for Brown Act violation, which does not violate the Brown Act. Okay. Uh, I already told you this was my my favorite slide. If the board's facing a matter that's controversial, embarrassing, messy, or complicated, and would love to handle it quickly and quietly in closed session, that's a pretty good indicator that the matter must be heard in open session. Right? That's the whole point of the Brown Act, is to make sure we don't do those things, uh, those uncomfortable and difficult things in closed session. Um, so a few different issues around closed session. Not all of these are, are talked about. Uh, the focus tends to be on what is a closed session item. I will address those, but let me talk about a couple of other important things, too. One of them is who gets to attend closed session. Um, members of the governing board, of course. Uh, the support staff necessary to inform or assist on a specific matter. So you may bring into closed session specific staff with the expertise or the background or the information to assist you in understanding a matter that's appropriate for closed session, but otherwise they should not be in the closed session. So uh, be careful about that. Outside consultants that are necessary to inform or assist on a specific matter may also come into closed session. So I may go into closed session with you on a student discipline matter, for example, that I'm assisting the district with and provide information as a consultant to the district. The issue is whether it's an appropriate closed session item. Um, staff that are not needed for the item should be excused. Um, a, a practice tip on this to be careful about is where is you, boards function in two different ways. You have a quasi-legislative role. That's when you are making policy. You have a quasi-judicial role when you're acting as the neutral in a dispute. And when you're in your quasi-judicial role, it's the one time where structurally the board and administration are separate. Okay? The administration is saying, we're recommending that you terminate this employee. We're recommending that you expel this student. And on the other side is the student or the employee that's saying, no, that would be a, a bad decision, that would be an illegal decision, what have you. When you're hearing that, you're neutral. So in that sense, you're separate from your district administration in that one instance. Okay? When you're in that quasi-judicial role in a disputed matter, you may not bring into closed session with you the district. Because that's bringing in one, that's like one side getting to talk to the judge without the other. So we have to be very careful about fairness and due process in those disputed situations where one side gets, doesn't get to come in without the other. 
Um, it's one of the challenges around that is is um, is how you get the advice and guidance you may feel you need on a matter, and having to bring in somebody who's independent. And so suddenly you've got you know lots of cooks in the kitchen. But that is just a fundamental due process piece to be careful about um, in closed undisputed matters. Real quickly on the exceptions, uh, pending litigation. Remember, the only the, the purpose of going into uh, closed session on pending litigation is to confer with your legal counsel and get their advice. You may not go into closed session under threatened or pending litigation if your lawyer isn't there. Your lawyer can be there in person. Your lawyer can be there on the phone. Uh, we don't think it's a great option, but your lawyer can be there through a memo. But the purpose of going into uh, closed session on um, the pending litigation is to receive the advice of legal counsel. Um, uh, pending litigation may be used to discuss uh, settlement offers uh, as well, but be careful that you don't decide the matter in closed session um, if it involves certain matters like um, uh well, the zoning variances don't really apply to you, but there are certain situations where even if you uh, deliberate in closed session, you'll have to act in in open session. Uh, personal matters that may be heard in closed session include appointment, employment, evaluation of performance, discipline, uh, complaints and charges made against an employee if they don't exercise their right to have the matter heard in open, uh, and um, compensation only if it is somehow a disciplinary reduction in pay, something you don't really do in this district. Uh, but compensation, for the most part, must be acted on an open session under the Brown Act. Um, one of the other, there are a number of, of post-City of Bell uh, Brown Act um, uh, provisions, uh, and that's one of them, is that you can't act on compensation in closed session. I'm not going to talk about the 24-hour notice unless, uh, oops, sorry. Did I go too fast? Oh, sorry. I was I was getting a little ahead of myself. Um, now, closed session is not permitted for a dispute, a censure, a termination, or evaluation of a board member uh, or of an independent contractor or your law firm. We are not your employees. You don't get to talk about us in closed session. Uh, I'm going to um, make a sort of a spoiler alert here. Uh, the last thing I'm going to talk about is the effective use of committees to help you with some agility so that you can advance the work of the board in between meetings in lawful ways. One of the things that I think a board committee is very useful for is for dealing with matters uh, like... Um, um, where there are conflicts or disputes with board members or allegations of conflicts of interest revolving board members. Because you cannot discuss a conflict of interest of a trustee in closed session. There is nothing that allows you to go there. And so the cumbersome thing and the, the, the sometimes unnecessarily uncollegial thing is that you can only discuss it in open session. And I, I, I will say that while I am a huge proponent of transparency, 
I, I see no benefit to unnecessarily embarrassing a trustee. So one of the way, one of the one of the effective uses of a subcommittee, of an ad hoc committee, is to have those non-quorum, private ways to try to resolve certain types of disputes. It also can be a way to deliver uh, certain types of evaluation information to a college president. It can be a way to um, do other things where the board feels comfortable delegating to a smaller group. You don't get to act, but you get to gather information, you get to deliver information, you get to report back to the full board. Um, so uh, I just wanted to mention that here when we're looking at the things that you are you can't go into closed session to discuss. Um, discussions relating to broad classifications of employees. Um, the Keep in mind, the personnel exception is there to protect the privacy of individual employees. Employee performance is a private closed session item. Uh, a, a layoff, a reorganization of employees is not about the performance of individuals. It's about the, the efficiency of your organizational chart and the delegation of duties among staff. And those discussions should not get into personalities. You should probably even try to avoid mentioning people's names if you're talking about a reorg. You're talking about job titles in that situation, right? In a layoff, you're talking about job titles, not people. Um, a, a sign that a, a you know that that's where where you are. So those sort of reorganizational pieces. Should we be combining the duties of the dean of business and the dean of something else um, based on the number of students in those programs, the overlap of disciplines, or whatever? Yes, no. That is absolutely an open session discussion. There's nothing about that you get to do in closed. Whether you think the dean of business is doing a good job is irrelevant to that discussion. And if there's to be a discussion about the dean, that happens in closed. Okay. Um, employee compensation and salary setting is, again, that is an open session uh, discussion unless uh, it's, it's disciplinary. Now let's talk about the labor negotiations exception as well. Uh, the board may meet with its designated representative in closed session uh, regarding compensation, um, but it may not act on the proposed compensation in closed session. The agency's representatives must be identified in an open session and a public session. Okay? So you can give guidance to your labor negotiator on compensation and any other provisions under the uh, that would be under negotiation, but compensation is the one I mentioned because you can't take any action on that. Ultimately, you ratify in open session. Um, now, this also applies to your unrepresented employees. So, your unrepresented employees, when you when you um, negotiate your contract with your CEO, you may uh, assign the negotiations to somebody that person can go into closed session with you and get guidance from you on how to negotiate that contract. So it's not just for your uh, represented employees. Now let's talk about drawing the line with what goes into closed session under the labor negotiations exception. Um, you may include discussion of budget, but be careful. Um, 
only to the extent it, it is directly tied to board guidance on an economic proposal. Don't use it as a flying wedge to bring budget review into closed session. Right? Be careful about that. And um, uh, I think a, I, I thought about, I, I think a, a generally true statement, but there will be exceptions, is that the budget information that you might, that a labor negotiator might be discussing with you in closed session in getting guidance on a compensation piece is information that's already been publicly presented. It should almost always have been part of a budget report or something that is already out there. Pro- Occasionally there will be a, you know, a, a May revise that suddenly came down from the state chancellor or um, a, some other information that's very new, and, and that would be fine. Uh, but this really is not a way to discuss budget in closed session. That is very much one of the things that should be highly transparent. Um, you also get to, and some people don't realize this, um, uh, that part of an appropriate closed session discussion with a labor negotiator is ground rules. Uh, when, the first time I meet with a board when I'm doing negotiations, we talk about ground rules. Uh, how much authority are you giving me? Um, when do I need to come back for more authority? Um, this is what I need from you while I'm in negotiations in terms of the way you communicate um, outside of this room. This is the level of confidentiality I need in order to be able to negotiate at the table. These are my expectations to avoid direct dealing, uh, that all offers are being presented by me as your lead negotiator to the bargaining team and aren't being presented in other forms and in other ways. Those are things that can all be discussed as part of the ground rule setting. What you want to be careful about is that we don't utilize that as an opportunity for general board training on labor relations. That happens in open session. This training I'm doing today has to be an open session. And, and it's a good thing that it's an open session. And it's a good thing that budget is discussed and open. Your job gets, mu- the more transparent you are about the information you have to use to make decisions, the easier it gets. Um, so transparency is really your friend. It really is in, in most instances. So be careful that, uh, and I would say the way to measure whether you're crossing the line into general board training is, do you have active negotiations going on? As long as you've got active negotiations going on, then the information you're getting from your chief negotiator relating to that and how you're managing those is probably fine. But if somehow a chief negotiator is coming into closed session and there are no open negotiations and start talking about how labor relations should work, that sounds more like an open session conversation to me. Uh, Real property transactions um, are also permissible and closed, but be careful uh, the um, the state attorney general has made clear what the limits are as to what can be discussed in this context. Um, the language in the statute refers to um, uh, price and terms, and it's the term. It, it's it's. Um, I misspoke. It has to do with the um, uh, the price and terms of payment. There it is on the slide. And the way it's been interpreted is terms of payment is a phrase. It's not price and terms. 
So any terms that don't relate to payment are not appropriate for closed session. Um, all other items are of uh, uh, have to be discussed in open session. And then there are certain agenda requirements that you have to list the property, you have to list who the negotiator is, you have to list the party is with whom uh, the district is negotiating. Um, all of those need to be on the agenda. And then you can discuss price and terms in closed session. Um, student discipline is also for closed session, except that the student does have the right to make a request that it be heard and open, just the way our employees have that right. And um, uh, if they do, then it's, and then it's heard in open session. Um, Uh, there was a case this year where a challenge was made um, to a, 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 an agenda item, a closed session agenda item, as violating the Brown Act. And it was a decision I liked because it actually applied common sense, and that doesn't always happen. And basically the rule is this. Does the description provide the public with reasonable notice of what is going to be talked about? And if the answer is yes, then it's going to be roughly compliant. And in this case, the description was completely accurate, and the district misstated the Brown Act section. It said, you know, 54957, and it was supposed to say 54956.3. And the court said, that's not a violation. Uh, the public had clear notice of what was going to be discussed. Okay. Um, uh, reporting after closed session. Remember, you only report out final actions of the board. Not everything that happens in closed session is reported out. Uh, only final actions are reported. And um, how much do you say? Um, uh, well, let me say this first. You must report out every final action in the open session after that meeting. Do not delay to another meeting. Uh, how much do you say? Um, on personnel actions, I think you are fine to use employee numbers, employee titles. I don't think you have to announce out by name. Uh, settlements, uh, you have to be more, um, you have to disclose the case, the case name, uh, the settlement amount, uh, if you're doing a settlement um, that's been approved by the board. And then I've already emphasized the importance of confidentiality of your closed session. So let's just really quickly run through a couple of these, and then I want to just get to the very last um, uh, section, which is this agility section. Open or close, just quick reaction. The board wants an update on the status of a contract grievance arbitration. Who says closed or open? What do you think? Closed. It's closed because it fits under, um, uh, that would fall under pending litigation. So administrative uh, disputes are also covered by threatened or pending litigation, but of course remember that um, that would mean you would ha that the legal counsel would need to be present. The board wants to discuss budget with the labor negotiator. I think that's the way I've phrased it. That's sounding like open. Uh, they're not wanting to discuss a wage offer that might be informed by the state of the budget. They just want to talk about the budget. Mm -mm. The board wants to discuss layoffs under dismissal discipline release. Nope, that's not a private personnel matter. Dis uh, a layoff is not based upon the individual performance of an employee, just like a reorganization is not about individual employees. 
Uh, the board wants to meet with legal counsel to understand options for hiring procedures. Open or closed? Open. I think that's going to be open. There's nothing, you, if you want just general information on the law, there's no basis to do that in closed. Uh, the board wants to discuss a board member conflict of interest issue. That's going to be open session. Okay, good. So it gets to this last section that I'm calling lawful agility, which is how do you, given that you get these limited times together to move the district's agenda forward, how do we do this as effectively as possible? Um, uh, general do's and don'ts. Do uh, follow the notice and subject matter requirements uh, for special meetings. Um, don't overuse them, and you don't use them for the approval of executive contracts. So one thing we can do is handling time-sensitive, time-intensive, and special business is through uh, these special meetings. There are three kinds of meetings, regular special and emergency. As you know, a regular meeting is the year, is this. It's posted with a 72-hour notice, etc. cetera. Um, what happens if you want to talk about something that isn't on the agenda? That's the first place that the Brown Act gives you a little bit of agility. Uh, the general rule is that you may not act or discuss on an item that's not on the posted agenda. The exceptions are brief responses. This sort of goes to the earlier question you had, Trustee Martinson. So brief responses, brief reactions to things are not going to be a violation of the Brown Act. There are also things that the law characterizes as emergencies and things that the law characterizes as immediate action. An emergency is where there's a need for immediate action, um, and the emergency must be declared by a majority of the board. This is flood, pestilence, Locusts. You're exercising your free speech rights, Trustee Mancuso. Um, uh, then there is the need for, the, this need for immediate action must be declared by two-thirds of the board or unanimous if less than two-thirds are present. Uh, you also have to vote and agree that there is a need to take immediate action and that such need came to the attention of the district subsequent to posting the agenda. The reason I've underlined the word the, the district is that this is not a safety valve for mistake. If the board president knew that the applications to get into a particular conference were due and forgot to bring it to the board's attention and now if or or a, a bid of some sort and now if we don't get it done at this meeting we'll lose our opportunity that's not a need for immediate action because the district knew so it truly has to be a situation where something has come up that is unanticipated and it's not a matter of a mistake the other thing you can have some agility with regard to your regular meetings is the ability to table things from a regular meeting. And um, so if an item was posted on a regular meeting agenda, at the regular meeting the board may act to continue the item as long as the meeting at which the item is addressed is no more than five calendar days after that regular meeting. So that's one of the other times you can meet other than a regular special or emergency meeting. It's regularly posted, you table it, and then you hold that meeting within five days. Again, it's just a, a, one of those things that is, gives you some lawful flexibility or agility. A special meeting can be called 
at any time by the presiding officer. So the chair of the board has the authority to call a special meeting um, or the legislative body may by a majority of vote. Here, notice only has to be posted 24 hours before the meeting. And then there's some other uh, requirements as to the type of notice. What are the limits on a special meeting? Uh, The governing board is prohibited from calling a special meeting to approve local education executive contracts. These are, again, part of the um, post-bell statutes. So what is the legislature concerned about? That we don't hold a special meeting in the dark of night and start giving people lots of money. So that you can't hold a special meeting for that. Uh, existing contracts were not abrogated when this uh, was put into place, but new contracts and contract renewals must occur during a regular meeting. Um, Quick question. Please. On the, on the tabling, um, what kind of notice? Do you have to re-notice? Yes. Do you have to go out with board docs again? I would put it out again. You're announcing it at the meeting, but I would put it out through board docs. Yeah. Um, and I would treat it sort of like a special meeting. I would do it with 24-hour notice. Um, now, how do special meetings help you with lawful agility? They're an opportunity for efficiency because they give you the time to do, handle matters that are unique or time-sensitive or time-intensive. Study sessions of the board can be at a special meeting so they don't intrude upon an otherwise busy agenda. That's a special meeting. Um, where waiting will prejudice a district such as a denial of a tort claim, the approval of a March 15th notice, uh, compliance with other statutory deadlines. Oh, my goodness, you realize that your March meeting is on March 17th. And there are statutory things you must do by March 15th. Hold a special meeting. Now, I want to point out the idea about public hearings as well. I mentioned earlier, I said, look, one of the things I'll point out is that a special meeting might be a time to address a matter of high interest where you want to make sure you devote enough time to public comment. The only caveat I would give there, with the idea being that you're following both the spirit as well as the letter of the Brown Act, is if the purpose of the special meeting is to be able to give due time to a matter of high interest, then you're going to afford more than the minimal required notice. Right, So you're not going to hold a public hearing and then give 24-hour notice. That would sort of undercut the whole purpose of doing it. So yes, you may hold a special meeting that's in between your regular meetings. That's what a special meeting is. But I wouldn't rely on the 24-hour notice if the whole purpose is to hold a meeting to give the public the opportunity to uh, comment in the type of time that isn't practical during a regular business meeting. Uh, Emergency meetings, I'm not going to recite all of the rules that you have them there, but they define emergencies and dire emergencies. These are the situations where you don't have to give posted notice. You can do uh, notice to newspapers or what have you. And again, these are for true uh, emergencies, uh, terroristic threats and national disasters and other things uh, of that nature. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to talk about, oh, look at 615. That's what I said I was going to do on my last two slides, is to talk about the use of board committees. I think this is another way to build lawful agility. And what I mean by that is that how can you, uh, within the strictures of the Brown Act um, and the strictures of, of Standard 4 of the accreditation provisions, advance the policy of the district, advance the 
actions of the district that are within your purview um, in between meetings because you can't get together as a board at Denny's and just get the work done. And committees are a way. They are a tool for the board. Um, they allow you for progress between meetings to do certain things. Evaluate data that are related to board work and bring, that, bring, a, bring a report, bring a recommendation back to the full board. The committee doesn't act, but, I mean, let's say there's a tremendous amount of data. Why should every single trustee have to wade through a lot of complex data? Maybe you, you have a committee. I mean, you do have committees. You have some standing committees. You have budget finance committees that may process some of this information and help make recommendations. Uh, some of them may be um, ad hoc committees. But they can process, distill information, come back to a full board with a recommendation. Um, again, you can see that part of what makes boards functional is a level of trust in the judgment of your colleagues. Uh, boards that feel like, that, the, that if I feel like I am indispensable to every single decision, and therefore everything must come to the full board so I can review every single thing, I'm going to bog the board down. I've, I've told you before that I don't think I would be a very good trustee. And that's one of the reasons. I, I admit it. I'm, gonna, I'm one of those people. I would want to have to see every piece of paper. I would want to look at every little thing. That's why I shouldn't be a trustee. All right. So, um, so in any case, trust, trust your colleagues to, to give you some of that data or those recommendations. Here are some examples of where it will help you be agile. Um, interview firms to assist in a CEO search and make a recommendation to the full board. If you're looking for a search firm and you want to interview them, you can't bring them into closed session to interview them. They're not your employees. I have been interviewed in, by a full board in open session because that was the only way the full board could talk to me and that full board wanted to be involved. They weren't willing to send it to a committee to do the interviews and make a recommendation back to the full board. At the very least, maybe your subcommittee can interview five and give you two or give you one that you would then interview in open session. Look how much more efficient you get when you are willing to let your, your committees do some of the heavy lifting for you. Um, also, what you can do, and in fact we have done here in this district, is using an ad hoc committee to develop a draft CEO evaluation based on the feedback from all of the trustees. It's only a draft. Then it comes back to the full board for finalization. Guess how long it takes to develop those evaluations if all the trustees have to be involved in every single step of the process? It takes months because you have to do a little bit at each meeting, and it goes on and on and on. So ad hoc committees are a wonderful way to process information, develop recommendations, still comes back to the full board. Um, but it's a wonderful way to, to, to build some efficiency. Now, these bodies are sometimes going to be subject to the Brown Act, sometimes not. It will depend. Uh, it will not be subject to the Brown Act if, number one, it must be an advisory committee only. It can't take action. It is composed only of trustees. So an advisory committee that's blended with trustees and non-trustees is going to be a Brown Act committee. Uh, it must be a committee of less than a quorum, it cannot be a standing committee or a committee that has a schedule that is fixed by the board. So if, if all of those things apply, then it's a committee that can meet outside of the uh, notice requirements of the Brown Act. 
And so then how should these committees be created and populated? Um, creation of committees, I think that standing committees are going to be by formal action. Uh, the creation of a committee that is going to regularly act on behalf of the board and be subject to the Brown Act seems to me to be a committee that should be adopted by the full board. Okay. But ad hoc committees can be uh, um, created by the board chair. I, I see that happen all of the time. It's one of the, um, the things you want to trust your board chair to be able to do. Things come up in between meetings. Uh, we would like to get some information out to the board, and so we set up an ad hoc committee to do that. Uh, a number of districts, if you look at their ethics uh, rules, specifically have the board chair responsible for setting up an ad hoc committee anytime there's an ethics complaint against a trustee. Part of that is to avoid this becoming a full board discussion before it has to be. Um, uh, so uh, there is nothing that legally precludes you delegating the authority to your board chair to establish ad hoc committees. And to me, it's, it is in line with their purpose. If we say that an ad hoc committee must be established by the full board, we're now back to that cumbersome, uh, we can't do anything for a month. We can only do these things at the meetings. So uh, I think you want to, you know, it's that it, it, is, it is a lawful best practice to give that authority. Can the full board also decide that it wants to create an ad hoc committee? Sure. Somebody can make a motion, set up a, and do that. Uh, that would have to be agendized, I think, um, if they're going to do it that way. Yes, Trustee. How do you um, decide if it will be a standing committee versus an ad hoc committee? What's the criteria? A standing committee is something that has regular and ongoing uh, duties. Uh, I think they're fairly well recognized as to what they are. You have a budget or a finance committee. Um, you know, I think that I think it would be a good deliberation for the board. If somebody wanted a standing committee, they would propose it, and the board would deliberate, and they would say, "Well, how how is how tied is this to the regular work of the board? How will this help the board?" develop the, the information it needs to act on its items. And I think those would be the questions you would ask as a board as to whether or not you wanted to create a standing committee. Um, now, by according to your own board policy, which I think is correct, the appointment of committee members is done by the chair. There's no election for committee members. Standing committees, ad hoc committees, all, all of those appointments are made by the board chair under your current uh, procedures. And um, is it a reportable action? I would say it's not. Uh, first of all, where an action to create or appoint is by the board, first, the subject matter will determine if the, and by reportable, I mean reportable out of closed session. So if the board is acting to create an, an ad hoc committee, or it, it's, it's probably being done in open session. Maybe there, I have, and actually, I've had a couple of situations uh, where an, a decision to make an ad hoc, to form an ad hoc committee happened in closed session because it was related to a personnel matter or what have you. That is not reportable. Remember, the only things you report out of closed session are final actions, 
and a decision to appoint a committee, to look into a matter, to figure out if we should do anything, is not a final action. So I, I often hear from boards that they, they worry that if they've made a decision in closed session, even a decision you know, where they voted, that feels like something very official. Don't they have to report that? And the answer is you only report out your final actions. Even your decisions to uphold a recommendation to terminate an employee is not a final action. Because that employee has the right to a hearing. They have the right to due process. And we don't announce those out in a way that, you know, even when you use employee numbers, people know who you're talking about. And it's a privacy piece. We don't report those out until the employee has received their full due process rights. Uh, Then it does have to be reported out. Um, And then, of course, where the action is by a board chair, there's simply no reportable action because nothing has happened at a board meeting. So those are my thoughts on the ways you can build some agility into this process where, um, where you are constrained to act only at a properly agendized meeting. And that is, uh, remember that you do have emergency meetings, special meetings, the ability to table, and a limited, limited ability to discuss some matters that are not agendized, and that you have at your, your, your ability to utilize uh, committees to try to advance some of the work of the district between your meetings. So between that, the agility piece, and managing your time well at your meetings by building your agendas well and being thoughtful about the way you deliberate, um, you can really be very high-functioning and focus on the policy and vision that is your contribution to the district. Thanks, and I apologize for going a little bit over. I even went over my over, but... You always ask such good questions here. Yes. Shulkin, good evening. There's, this evening there is, on the, tonight's board agenda, a board report that could have been posted prior to, the, or actually given 72 hours. So could one discuss content if it was posted to the agenda prior to 72 hours, a board report, a board of trustees board report? No. I don't think a board report is a discussion item. So even though it was posted 72 hours in, in advance. Right. And I, okay. I wouldn't even, Trustee Beldini, I'm not sure I would even, uh, that would, if, if we started looking at things uh, about, well, it's a regular agenda, but we, based on when we posted things will affect whether we could discuss them, I think you would end up in a real quagmire. Um, just let's look at it functionally, what the role of a, of a board report is. It's to give a two-minute snapshot to your fellow trustees of information that may be useful to them in future deliberations on items. Quick, short, not for discussion. Um, Well, looking at tonight's, as an example, is it appropriate in content? I'm a little bit um, uh, at a disadvantage because I'm not sure I know what you're referring to. I think, doesn't the agenda just say board reports? It doesn't say board report on. I, I would say I, that's unusual, um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm really at a loss because I don't know what this is referring to, but um, board reports are really not a place to do a lot of substantive 
you know, again, let that's the substantive information. I thought a really helpful point around the action focus on the agenda is the, the place where trustees are presenting data and information is in connection with the work of the district as it's been agendized. Then it's relevant. Then, then other trustees can see the connection as to its relevance. Um, that's where I think it goes is we're on this agenda item and now I want to talk about this information. Um, that would be my, my general report. If, if a trustee has in advance put something, uh, posted it, I'm not sure how that even happens, but um, let's say it became part of a, a board packet uh, as a support document for a board report, okay, it's still going to be that trustee's board report. And that trustee will make his or her report in two or three minutes and there will be that backup document that was provided, and that'll be that. I don't think it invite. It, I don't think it should be the fact that a trustee chose to attach something, uh, so the trustees would be aware in advance of what his or her uh, report was going to be about. Is a way to invite discussion. So I we don't we think you should. could. It could be a good practice to do that. Attach it. No, I don't yeah. think it's a good practice. I think it would not be a good practice. Because I think it's going to cause people, and I apologize if I've just maybe, I, I'm sorry, Trustee Aldini, I hope you're not the person who attached the documents because I just <laughs> scolded you. But um, uh, I would say, I would say um, it, 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 mis, it, it creates a misunderstanding over what the role of the board report is. And I just worry that trustees are going to start attaching things and, they're, and giving information to fellow trustees in a context that doesn't help direct them to why they think it's important to the board's action agenda or the board's agenda because it's just sort of getting attached. And I just worry that that's going to end up misguided. The board's going to lose sight of what the role of the board report is. So I, I apologize if you if you attach something. And um, uh, I would just say it's there as an information piece. You're still going to do your brief report. People, your fellow trustees are going to listen. And that's going to be the end of it. Thanks very much. Thank okay. you. I, I hate to jump in, but yes. we need to get moving um, and get, get to closed session and get to the rest of the meeting. So yes. I'm hoping we can. Thank you for staying way over. Yeah, I, You've got somewhere else to be. I do have somewhere else to go. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you all. You always ask great questions and make me stay late. <laughs>